Let us pray. Father, there are many things for which we pray. Today, we think a little about just how to ask you for what we need. Give us thankful hearts, Father, and help us to not request those things that are not in line with what Jesus would have us do. Instead, change us more and more so that we ask according to Christ's way. In his most holy name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It is the sixth Sunday of Easter, or if you prefer, the fifth Sunday after Easter. I find that very confusing when you look up a lectionary. You have no idea where you are. And it's also commonly known as what? Hello? Yes, who said that? I think it's much bigger day in Britain than it is here. <laughs> in any event, you may recall, as I did from my high school Latin days, which was be- many, before, many years before most of you were born, is what I'm trying to say. The root of the word is rogo, and that means to ask. And so you should see the connection to the opening line of the passage read by Deacon Bob, where Jesus tells the disciples, that the Father will give them in his, Jesus, name, whatever they ask. Implicit here is an acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is to leave them, but it seems to me a message of reassurance for the disciples as well. I shall not spend any time on what has evolved over time from this concept of asking, only to mention that some of you may recall reading about agrarian cultures where folks ask God for a fruitful growing season and good crops from that. And then some of you may have heard, and I know Monica's going to know this one, there is the beating of the bounds. Yes, Monica? The beating of the bounds. Not beating your spouse, but beating of the bounds. And this refers to those after the service, after Mass, would take sticks and go out and beat the ground the boundaries, the boundaries of the church. And the implication, I think, was that anything within the boundary was part of the church's property and anything growing there would flourish. But I'm not going to say any more about that. (laughs) I'm just mentioning it. This sounds a little primitive to me, but that's perfectly all right. Well, what about asking God? The disciples will be asking God for what they need in a new way. Although Jesus' death resurrection and ascension to the Father will render him the perfect mediator between God and man, they will not need Jesus as an intermediary. They can ask God directly. But we know from personal experience the reality here. God sets limits on what he gives us. God gives and God takes away. He gives and he takes away according to his purposes. And we may not always be too happy with this. So, just a word about how you ask. You must ask in the name of Jesus. Now, that does not mean saying in the name of Jesus at the end of every prayer. Yes, we do often do that as an exclamation point. And I think we're trying to remind God that we have thought about the ways of the Jesus before we prayed. And so when we ask, 
We should be asking according to how we see Jesus in our lives. Ask according to how we see Jesus in our lives. What it means is asking what Jesus would ask if he were asking. It means praying what Jesus would pray if he were praying. Jesus, remember, had no problem with praying for the blind to see, for the deaf to hear, for the lame to walk, for the dumb to talk, even for the dead to rise again. Jesus had no problem with asking his Father for anything. Jesus knew how to ask. The way we ask, in Jesus' name, is asking according to his word. If we pause before we pray and focus on Jesus, we may well recall any number of things Jesus has told us in Scripture. As part of our growing in Christ, our thinking, asking, and praying should be slowly but surely becoming more in line with his way. Later in this passage, there is a statement of equally great import to us as Christ followers. Last week, you may recall that I enumerated several announcements Jesus delivered to his confidants, the disciples. Today's reading holds another major announcement that we should look at. And as I said, these were things that would show just how the future would be different from the past. Jesus, for once, appears to be speaking clearly here. The disciples acknowledge that. And even Jesus says that in the past he has spoken in figures or parables, but not now. And so, here is the major bombshell that they seem to understand completely. Jesus says, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now, I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Now remember, Jesus is stating this before his passion. This is in anticipation of that but he knows clearly what is to transpire, and so he can say this most assuredly. What Jesus appears to be emphasizing one more time is that he is none other than the Son of God, and that the cross will not be for him a criminal's death, but the way back to his Father God. Think about that. In Deuteronomy, we talk about the unholiness of being hung on a tree. The cross for Jesus will not be for him a criminal's death, but the way back to his Father God. That's another wow. I had a wow last week. Well, here's another one. We do need to focus on this just for a moment because it is tied in closely with the atonement, one of my favorite subjects which is that incredibly awesome process that was the most important part of Jesus' work on the cross. Should you not recall, let me define atonement. It is the reconciliation of God 
and humankind through Jesus Christ. The reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. You may recall, I have mentioned this previously, but it is the absolutely crucial doctrine of Christianity and deserves many repetitions. Jesus had to suffer death on the cross of Calvary. He was born to die. It was part of God's plan. I don't mean to trivialize it in any way, but we may see it as one more of the stepping stones God set in place for us as we slowly but inexorably wend our way back to God's kingdom. You know, where God rebuilds the fallen cosmos, a cosmic redemption. Remember, too, Jesus came to earth of his own volition. He, he offered to become incarnate, a God-man, so that he could experience the fallen world. Heal the sick. Teach us how to live. And then be crucified. His execution was punishment for all of man's sins for all time. And indeed, he substituted himself for all of mankind. Matthew 20, and echoed very similarly in Mark 10, I hope I marked this, reminds us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, but most importantly, to give his life as a ransom for many. Very plainly stated. Another time we could spend significant time talking about the different theories of this process of atonement, but the key things are the elements that are there. These elements are it was of his own choosing that Jesus was crucified. The debt that was paid was paid to God. There was obedience to God unto death. And his actions demonstrate not only God's love for man, but God's need for justice. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He hates sin. He can't tolerate sin. He demands justice. Evangelicals generally see it as penal substitution, as I've outlined it with these elements. And here I will quote J.I. Packer, that most eminent British-born Canadian theologian. He must have seen the light, Monica. I don't know. <laughs> this is from J.I. Packer. Quote, it is entirely the place where God did something for man, not simply first century man, but mankind for all time. This is almost too big to grasp, or at least it is for this boy. But I would invite you to all to dwell on this in your prayer time, and we will study it some more another time. Let me close with a few comments on the next chapter of John's Gospel.
chapter 17, which is termed collectively the High Priestly Prayer. To review, chapters 13 through 17 are the farewell address or the farewell discourse. Chapter 17 is the final chapter of that. And I think I said at the earlier Mass, I invite you all to spend time today and before the end of this Easter season reviewing John's Gospel, especially, if you will, the farewell discourse, John 13 through John 17. Please do that. So the high priestly prayer. This is the final chapter in the so-called farewell discourse. And when speaking about context previously, you've heard me talk about the bookends of a particular section of Scripture. Thinking of what comes before, what comes after, is often helpful as you're trying to sort through what you're trying to understand. Chapter 17, then, is the closing bookend for our passage. Here, in a most beautiful way, Jesus says, as he prays for his disciples to the Father, those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. Now, if you're alert, you will realize that Judas was lost. But parenthetically here, Jesus says, he was lost so that scripture could be fulfilled. So we let that go. But note, most importantly, that Jesus intercedes for us in this prayer. Regardless of how much may be lacking in our prayers, Jesus suffers from no such insufficiency. His prayer is, those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. And here I'm getting chills. Jesus keeps every one of us. He does it in the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, of which we shall soon partake. As we consume him with hearts filled with faith in him, we are reassured that he is praying for us and interceding for us. And we know that his prayers will never fail. Amen.